Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsandiego.com. Oh, man, what, what an exciting week. Wednesday's Christmas is when we would light the Christ candle. We will not be together. Um, you can imagine that. Uh, Tuesday is Christmas Eve. Monday night, the Packers are going to be the Vikings. Uh, today, we have our candlelight service. Guys, it's a good week. I mean, this is just going to be filled with great things. You can tell I'm excited. Uh, we have family in from out of town. Jeremy and Crystal, welcome you guys. Um, Jen's oldest brother, his family get to be here. And last night, actually, I'm going to kind of open up with, with a story. We were talking um, about, uh, we, I think I have a picture, actually. Um, yep, that's what we were having a deep com- theological conversation last night about uh, Elon Musk's newest toy he's just revealed. This is the Tesla truck. If you have not seen it yet, you're welcome. Um, Merry, Merry Christmas 2020, if you're looking for a pastor's appreciation gift next year, it's totally would, would welcome that. Um, but we're, t- we're talking about uh, the, just the ingenuity of this machine and, and just kind of the, the conversation it's stirred up and everything Elon Musk does uh, just stirs up because he just thinks so progressively and he's such an amazing entrepreneur. And uh, we were talking about how he's now invented these uh, roof shingles that are solar, can receive solar energy that can power an entire house and then empower that car as going. And I was just, you know, in that moment, I was like, wow, that's just like the Lord, isn't it? You know, he's the light we receive from him. He powers our home and we go out to the world. And I was just, Right? It's not, yeah. But actually what I was, I was thinking about when we were talking about uh, this truck is, and about this whole idea of just using solar energy is I started thinking about SDG&E. I started thinking about the power companies. I started thinking about um, something that sociologists call disruptive technology. And disruptive technology is when something is given to a culture or is shown to a culture and it's received and it's, it's received so well that it actually eliminates something else that used to exist. Anyone remember a good old VHS machine, right? Remember getting the videos? Not the paper sleeves. I'm talking about the plastic ones, the really nice ones that you get from Disney. And all of a sudden, like, these discs showed up, DVDs, and all of a sudden you're like, I got a DVD player, I got a Blu-ray player, and now we have Disney+. Plus. I mean, it just, all of a sudden, you're watching technology grow so rapidly that things that you had to have don't even exist anymore. And all of those things pale in comparison for the arrival of Jesus, You see, the world had never seen anything like it and has never seen anything like it since. When Jesus showed up, the the heavenly divine being of God in human flesh, it changed and changes everything. And that's what we're going to be focusing on today. It's what we've been focusing on the last three weeks. And we've been doing this in in a unique way where normally we might read Matthew, Mark, or Luke who tells some of the specific details of the birth of Jesus. There's a fourth gospel writer by the name of John who decides to tell the story from the vantage point, not of shepherds or kings, 
not of a not of a virgin about to give birth, but tells it from the perspective of God. And he tells this large cosmic view of what's taking place at the incarnation, the arrival of Jesus. And, he's, and he opens up his biography of Jesus' life with the, with the idea that the word, which is a reference to the powerful animating force that existed in the universe, was in fact Jesus. And it was with God in the beginning, and it was God, and this word brought life, which is a central theme to all of John's writings, that Jesus came for a specific purpose, and that purpose was that eternal, abundant life would be accessible for all. And that life was so powerful that it actually gave light, and that darkness could not overcome it. And as we've been journeying through John's account of the incarnation, uh, I came to this week, and I sat down on Wednesday, which is my day I prep for um, these sermons, and we're done with chapter one of John. Um, and we're going to continue working through John in, in, in 2020, but I was like, well, what do I do? Do I go to one of the other gospel writers? And I really felt impressed by the Holy Spirit to turn to a letter that this same author, John the Beloved, wrote to a church he was pastoring. And so we're going to be actually, our text this morning is going to be out of First John, chapter 1, and what's fascinating, and I never correlated the two, he begins his letter really with the same themes that he begins his book with. But he does something different. Rather than just talking about the new Tesla truck that showed up, he's talking about what happens to SDG&E. Rather than talking about the event or the announcement, he's talking about the effect. What happens when Jesus shows up, what happens at the appearing? What does it do in us? How does it form community? How does it shape our mission? And so what I would like to do today as we get ready for Christmas is not just to focus on the event, which is beautiful and profound in and of itself, but to ask the question that John starts to dive into in his, in his letter is, so what? What does that mean for his congregation he's writing to? What does it mean for Light Church? How does it shape us as individuals? How does it shape us as a family and as a community? And my hope is that as we leave today, we would have a clear understanding of God's heart and his formation of this new community and how he intends for it to be an expression of his light and life in the world around us. And so before we can read the text this morning, just to set up a little bit of context here, John is writing this um, at the end of his life. It's one of the, the oldest books in the Bible. And as he's writing this, he's writing pastorally to a congregation he's pastoring that is facing uh, some specific problems. And he addresses these problems, and I love this, he addresses them with the incarnation. Remember the birth of Jesus. Remember when Jesus showed up. But I wanted to kind of lay out these three problems that he's addressing and see if they sound familiar with maybe our own cultural moment. Uh, the first thing he's addressing is division over different ideals. Ever come across that in our day and age, ever, on Twitter? Uh, number two, he's addressing discouragement over present circumstances. I think about just what this room represents and the present circumstances that people are facing and the challenges they're facing. Number three, he addresses disillusionment over false teaching and false ideas. Again, these things that John is addressing here are things that we are facing to this day. And his solution for them is the Christmas story. It's remember what happened when Jesus came. 
And so, with that in mind, let's, let's read 1 John, the first nine verses in chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning, here it is, the logos of life, the same wording he used in his gospel. Verse 2, the life appeared. That's his one sentence for the Christmas story. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has, here it again, appeared to us. We proclaim that we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make your joy complete. (coughs) Pardon me. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there's no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Uh, there's three key ideas here that John is presenting in response to what he calls the arriving of life. What happens when Jesus arrived? There's three things that he that kind of manifest in his writing. Number one is there's this invitation into fellowship, this Greek word koinonia, which is this beautiful word we'll describe here in just a minute. Secondly, he talks about a formation of joy, a fulfillment of joy that takes place. And thirdly, he starts to proclaim about the light as a result of Jesus showing up. So let's work through these three key themes that John is presenting here in his opening, um, his opening prologue to his letter. And he opens it up with this idea of fellowship. And he does this in, in an interesting way because he, he says when life arrived, when Jesus showed up and the incarnation happened, we saw him, we heard him, we touched him. Some people think that this is being written in 90 AD or more. Most of his audience has not seen Jesus. They didn't hear Jesus. And so he starts to refer to them that that light and that life is now represented in you. You are the physical representation of the life that appeared through Jesus Christ now continuing through you. And so he puts this high value on this idea of, of, he says, fellowship multiple times in these opening paragraphs. And it's this Greek word koinonia. And koinonia is this incredibly beautiful word that, frankly, we don't have an English word to translate for. So fellowship is the closest thing we do. But we don't even use the word fellowship unless you're watching Lord of the Rings um, very much. Because we don't really have a category for something that, that is that deep and profound when it comes to community and relationship. You see, in a culture where family was uh, at the height of any priority, 
when relationship and status was built around social constructs, the highest level you could ever achieve socially was this idea of koinonia. It meant intimacy and depth and being known and loving one another. And the church adopted this as this is what we are. We are koinonia. We have fellowship with God and with each other. And John is putting this significant emphasis of this is what the incarnation came to do. It wasn't just an event. This is now you. You are supposed to be the presence of God in the world through this fellowship. And there's power in that. And so I want to speak to you pastorally this morning as a church that what's happening right here is is not just an event that happens on Sunday. God is forming a family. He's forming a community because he longed to show up in Encinitas and his presence shows up largely through you. In San Diego, in, in Escondido, in Visto, wherever you live, your, your unit, your sphere of influence, your community has the ability to be the incarnate presence of God the same way Jesus was the incarnation of the presence here on earth. And this is what John is trying to get out here. Um, I had a, a sad moment this week. I went and picked up my daughters from school, and our youngest daughter, Vienna, who's in first grade, isn't there. And I'm like, man, where's... Where is she? And normally she's kind of like first one there. And I'm looking at her teacher, and her teacher kind of looks at me like, I don't know where she is, and that's not good. <laughs> um, and so I just kind of start looking, and in the back of the school, I see this tiny little girl dragging her backpack, head down, just like walking as slow as she can. And I'm like, what in the world? And she's literally the saddest I'd ever seen her picking her up from school. And I pick her up. I'm like, do you want to talk about it? She's like, no. And doesn't, won't say why she's sad or upset. And I asked her teacher. And she's like, I don't, I don't know what's going on. And so we finally get home. And she's hanging out with me and Jen. And she, she ends up telling Jen, she's like, Every, everyone, all of my friends were mean to me today. And like, oh, dude, my dad heart was just like, who are they? <laughs> <laughs> And she's just this, pre- I mean, Vienna, I mean, all of our children are so precious, but she just is the most just compassionate, sweet soul. And I, I, it was amazing the, like, depth of, like, pain that she felt in her six-year-old frame at the lack of this. Like, it was, her world was over. And um, like all good six-year-olds do, the next day it was like all fine and good. <laughs> and so good into the story. And then we emailed the teacher and she's like, yeah, I think it's all good. But there's this moment where I was, I'm studying about koinonia, the beauty that can happen through community that is formed by Christ's incarnational love. And then I'm looking at my six-year-old daughter who, again, has a very, very little sense of reality and the brokenness of the world. But in her world, nothing hurt more than that. And, and on the flip side, I think about some of the people in my life who've recently started following Jesus. And 90% probably of the time when I have conversations with people who've recently started following Jesus, and not, not for everyone, but for the large majority, it happens not because they heard a reasonable intellectual argument. Um, it's not because they had like God show up in their bedroom and speak to them. Again, not that these things don't, like happen, but they always point to koinonia. They're like, I've never felt loved like this before. I've never belonged to something like this before. I, I, and sometimes they don't have words for it. 
One of my best friends, his name is Dylan Simmons, and he's an incredibly intelligent, amazing human being. And when he, later on in his teen years, became a follower of Jesus. And when I asked him about it, I'm like, how did you become like a devout follower of Jesus? And he says this, I've never been around a community like that before. And the community in and of itself, when it's formed by Jesus, has the power to change the world around it. And this is what John is getting at. He says, why is the incarnation important? Because it forms the community that we can become when we become that presence to the world around us. Secondly, he builds on this idea of, of this fellowship, this koinonia, and he starts talking about the concept of joy. When he says in verse 4 and 5, it says, And our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make your joy complete. And, and, and some translations say our joy complete. Some of them say your joy complete. And I think that it's actually fitting that they don't know where to land on that because it's both and. But the, the point is that there's something about this fellowship that we have amongst each other and with Jesus because of the incarnation that produces a joy in us that is not half full. It's complete, and it's holistic. And again, the minute I start talking about joy, I know there's a few of you who, are, um, who rightfully so, immediately want to put up a wall and say, well, that's not me, and that's not the season of life that I'm in. Two things. One, um, I want to let you know that you ha- that's totally fine. If you're not in a season right now where you want to hear about joy for the next 10 minutes, that's, you're welcome to be here, and that's absolutely okay. But the second thing I want to let you know is that the scriptures we're going to be reading and diving into are written by a man who history tells us was boiled alive and survived. So was exiled to an island called Patmos to die. All the while, all of his friends were being crucified and dying as martyrs. This is not someone writing about joy sitting on a beach somewhere. He speaks from a place of deep sorrow, pain, and life, loss, about an even deeper sense of joy. So if you're here this morning and the concept of joy is one that's hard for you to wrestle with, I want you to listen to it, not from my perspective, which may or may not earn merit in your heart, but through someone who has experienced a sense of loss that, that is very real. And he writes to this church who is being persecuted at that moment. And he writes to them about joy. I'm writing to you about the incarnation, the arrival of Jesus, the community it's forming, that your joy would be filled to complete. And in order to understand a biblical understanding of joy, I'm just going to present just a few themes for you this morning. If this interests you, there's there's a church that that has been formational for us in Portland Um, called Bridgetown. You can look up their podcast. They spent two hours talking about joy. I'm going to spend about seven, eight minutes. Um, But I encourage you to go listen to that. And some of their research and content has helped form this. But just five things I want to lay before you when it comes to how do we interact with joy, specifically around the holidays. Number one, it's understanding that God himself is joyful. Secondly, that becoming like Jesus welcomes us into becoming joyful people. Thirdly, that joy does not mean the absence of sorrow. Fourthly, that sin is what robs us of our joy. And fifthly, that we grow in joy by gazing into our joyful God. 
Let's work through these five, these five concepts. Number one, God is the most joyful being in the universe. Um, Paul, another New Testament writer, writes to his apprentice Timothy in the first chapter, verse 11, says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. That word blessed in the Greek is the word makarios. We did a whole sermon on this when we did the Sermon on the Mount a couple years ago. Makarios means blessed, but it's probably better translated happy. Paul, right, who isn't always known as the most like happy guy, just referred to the God, to, to Timothy. He's like, oh, the glory of the happy God, the blessed God, the joyful God. He gives him that definition. I think about Nehemiah 10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And sometimes I flip that, the strength of the Lord is my joy. Um, but that's not what the verse says. It says the joy of God, God's joy, God's happiness is what strengthens me. But that first and foremost means I have to think of God as joyful, which is kind of a fleeting thought for me. I, I think of God as like um, powerful. I think of him as this person who is, is on a mission and building his kingdom and advancing us and loving. But I'm normally not like you're the happy guy. You know, I'm normally not like type seven sanguine, like just life of the party God. That's not like my first thought, but if you look at the scriptures, this is what we see. A matter of fact, Jesus, who is God in flesh, as he's walking around, literally saving the world, gets a reputation as someone who's a glutton and a drunk, eating with tax collectors and sinners. This is his reputation. Oh, you just like to party. God's like, yes, I, I do like to party. This is the God we serve. And, and the problem is, is if we don't have a healthy theology of a joyful God, then that actually starts to form our spirit. So it's, it's vital for us to view God as the most joyful being in the universe. D Dallas Willard writes it like this in his book, The Divine Conspiracy. Central to the understanding and proclamation of the Christian gospel today is a revisioning of what God's own life is like and how the physical cosmos fit into it. It is a great and important task to come to terms with what we really think when we think of God. Most hindrances of the faith of Christ actually lie, I believe, in this part of our minds and souls. We should begin with Think that God leads a very interesting life and that he is full of joy. Undoubtedly, he is the most joyous being in the universe. I love that the president of Dallas Theological Seminary, who went on to be the head of philosophy at USC before he died, writes that God is the most joyous being in the universe. And, and, and tells us, you should think about that. <laughs> That's what you should think upon. And it's not just that we think about God as joyful, but that starts to change us. It's actually, there's something called uh, neurotheology. It's kind of a new field. And what they're finding is, and this is just scientific fact, how you think of God forms your physical brain. What you think of God, whatever you think about God, actually changes your neurology. And with that, it should be no surprise that this is why God presents himself in, in this way. Think, I mean, think about what, what Jeannie just read here a few minutes ago when the gospel or the angel's announcement of Jesus' arrival 
It says, when the shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night, minding their own business, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause what? Great joy for all people. I mean, this, this, is the, this is preceding the announcement of the birth of Christ. Let me tell you what I'm about to tell you about. It's going to be about joy for everyone. And this is what the incarnation does for us. This is why, this is why John, as he's writing this letter to his church, who's being persecuted as someone who has been persecuted, he reminds them, remember that Jesus arrived, and that can make our joy complete. Sonia Limbersky, who... A uh, professor at University of California, Riverside, recently became famous because of her research on happiness. And one of the things that she discovered in her research um, that she put forth is that for people who are joyful people, happy people, she says that 50% of that is your genetics, which some of you guys are like, that explains it. Um, she says 40% is what you think about and what you do with your body. And only 10% of people who are happy are that way or joyful that way because of their circumstances. 10%. Now, her research has been debated of recent. And people are trying to say, well, maybe it's flawed. Maybe it's more what you think about and less of your family of origin, although both of those take a lot of precedence. But no one disagrees with the 10% mark. Circumstances are not would cause joy. Now, it, they speak into it, but I think that we give, we give our circumstances way too much credit for the joy that's accessible to us through Jesus Christ. And, and it's interesting, um, Jonathan Grant, who's another author, uh, writes about even our, even our physical brain, just some more evidence of how joy is accessible regardless of what's going on in our life. And even the spiritual disciplines, walking with Jesus, speaks both to our genetics and our biology and what we think about. Like this, this uh, can all be touched because of what Jesus has done. This is what he writes. This is a little bit lengthy, but I think it's really significant. It won't, it won't be on your screens, but you can listen. Joy is a concept that is woven through Scripture from beginning to end. The prophet Nehemiah proclaims, the joy of the Lord is your strength. The psalmist witnesses that when anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought me joy. Sadly, joy has become a biblical cliche that seems to have no real meaning or significance within our culture. Yet, crucially, joy is the foundation of Christian desire and relationship. Neurologists have shown that while most brain development stops sometimes in childhood, the brain's joy center located and observable in the right orbital prefrontal cortex, is the only part of the brain that never loses its capacity to grow. Let me just say that again. Your joy center in your brain, you can literally observe it, is the only part of your brain that never loses its capacity to grow throughout your entire life. Although we are born as a bundle of potential, our interactions in early childhood lay the path for our future relationships, shaping our capacity as desiring beings for good or ill. 
As a parent, particularly a mother, tunes into her infant, the baby mimics the parent's response in this way. The brain begins the complex process of being wired for back-and-forth communication of human relationship. These positive early interactions create a joy reservoir or joy strength that acts as the command and control center of the entire emotional system. Dr. James Friesen And his colleagues explain, when the joy center has been sufficiently developed, it regulates emotions, pain control, and immunity centers. It guides us to act like ourselves. It releases neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin. And it is the only part of the brain that overrides the main drive centers, food and sexual impulses, terror and rage. They suggest that without sufficient joy strength, we spend the rest of our lives trying to fill the deficit. I mean, it's, just, it's fascinating that the research is finding out what Scripture has been proclaiming for 2,000 years. I mean, how, how does someone on the verge of being exiled and dying write to a church in the middle of persecution? And by the way, it does not get better for quite some time about a complete joy. Well, because he refers them back to something that's greater than their circumstances, to the divine act of God's love showing up in the flesh of Jesus Christ. He showed up, and which leads kind of to our third point. Joy does not mean the absence of sorrow. I think a lot of times we think like the opposite of joy is sorrow. So like if I'm joyful, I'm not sorrowful. But the longer I've lived, the more I've realized that those two things are existing in my life every single day. I can't think of a day in my life, the past few years, you can talk to me and I could tell you something I'm joyful about and something that I'm in pain about. I think the more you live, the more you love, the more you realize, the more those two things are just there, joy and sorrow. And so please hear me. I am not telling you to disregard or suppress your sorrow. A matter of fact, I think that joy... I'm sorry, I should say, I think that the sorrow you feel is actually evidence for the joy you long for. It's evidence that there's something not right. And it's exactly why Jesus came. And that's why the incarnation is their source of joy. It is our hope that that sense of pain, longing, grief, heartache that we sense in our hearts, that there's something not right. And Jesus confirmed our pain with his life. I'm here because of that. Now your joy can be complete. Even if your sorrow still exists, you can know that it will not always be. I think about Jesus himself. The, the hours before he's put up on the cross, records him being in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying so much in anguish. Luke records him that sweating drops of blood. It's a word of, of sorrow and anxiety that Jesus is feeling. At this same moment, the author of Hebrews says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For me, as I've studied this week, I never even really realized that Jesus operated with both. He was both the man of sorrows and he was the tidings of great joy for all people. Jesus had both of these. And so for him, in the moment of his greatest sorrow, as he looks at the cross in the face, it says that the author who says that there was something in him that had fixed itself on this joy that was set before him. That carried him through the pain. It brought him through the cross. 
because he knew that there was something beyond it. Henry Nouwen, one of my favorite authors, says, joy does not simply happen to us. We have to choose joy and keep choosing it every day. It is important to become aware that every moment of our life we have an opportunity to choose joy. It's, it's interesting they did um, another study on people who had been in severe accidents. Some of them turned to, um, became quadriplegics and some of them ended up uh, returning to full health. And they were studying their levels of happiness and joy and what they found, obviously, is that the people who became quadriplegics had an initial drop in happiness and joy. But they tracked these two groups of people and what they found is after six months is that these two groups of people had the same level of joy, and the only exception to that is some of the quadriplegics had more happiness and more joy. And I think when that moment, if you would talk to someone who has had an injury like that, it's not like that isn't always a part of them. It doesn't mean that that doesn't exist, and it's something that they have to learn how to live with. But I think the amazing gift that comes with the life of Jesus and the life that he gives is that we have the ability to draw from a well and a source of joy that is so much deeper than the circumstances that our life throws at us. And that is good news. So if if sorrow is not the opposite of joy, if sorrow does not steal our joy, what does? Um, I would argue sin. Sin steals our joy because God, being the most joyful being in the universe, created us to experience and enjoy him. And when we sin, it is ultimately an act of defiance and an act of not trusting that God truly wants what's best for you. Ignatius of Loyola describes sin like this. Sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. I love that definition of sin. This, that's all that sin is. It's a trust thing. It's that we have moments where we see an immediate sensation of pleasure or happiness, and we may have a sense that over here God offers us another sense of happiness or joy, but this one seems quicker or more convenient, and so because of our lack of trust in the goodness of God, we choose what's immediate. And so I don't, I don't think what's robbing our joy is sorrow. I think we can have those two things exist, but I think it's, it's we just don't trust that God is himself joyful, longing for us to experience the joy that he brings through his life. And that's the invitation of today, which leads me to it's kind of our last sub-point here on joy, is that we grow in joy. If sin r- robs us of joy, we grow in joy when we fix our gaze on Jesus, when we fix our gaze on God. Remember the author of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2? Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So I would, I would encourage you guys over this week, if you have a moment in, in prayer, imagine, fix your eyes on Jesus and imagine him smiling. Imagine the laughter that would have taken place in those ancient 
homes along the Sea of Galilee, Jesus ate bread and drank wine and enjoyed life. This is the God that we serve. And as we fix our eyes on a God who is the, is the source of all joy, let that begin to form you. Karl Barth, the theologian, says, God's triune being is radiant, and what it radiates is joy. It's loving interweaving of persons as if in a cosmic dance. Radiate beauty. God acts as one who gives pleasure, creates desire and rewards with enjoyment, and does it because he is pleasant, desirable, and full of enjoyment. This is what we mean when we say that God is beautiful. If we deny this, we, are, we at once have a God without radiance, without joy, without humor, a God without beauty. This is why the gift of Jesus is so powerful and profound. After John talking about the arriving of life, the arrival of Jesus, and he talks about community and fellowship with God and with each other, the joy that can become complete, he immediately turns to this concept of light. He says, this is the message we've heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now here's, here's what's happening right here in John's letter. He's addressing a specific heresy that's taking place in his church and churches around him. This heresy is called Docetism. And Docetism was really prevalent in actually as a result of John's gospel. Some of his followers started to start thinking, well, Jesus was so divine, he actually never was a human being. He never was an actual human, just kind of a spirit that looked like a human being. And the problem with that heresy is that they began to start having such a skewed kind of elevated view of Jesus is that they began to take that upon themselves and say, well, it doesn't really matter what I do with my body because Jesus really wasn't a body. I'm really not a body. So they would either do one of two things. They would indulge in whatever sinful acts they wanted with their body and think that they were totally fine. Or they found themselves becoming so rigid, trying to become like this, this unhuman like Jesus that they put burdens on people that they couldn't endure. And so John starts to write to them and says, let me tell you about this light that God brought, that we are called to walk in the light. But this is what I love in John's writing that he does right here. He does it, when he says walk in the light, he doesn't say stop sinning. He doesn't lean them towards perfectionism. He leads them into confession. He says, do you, know, do you want to know how to walk in the, in the light? Confess your sins, often. Because he'll be faithful and just to forgive you. Expose your humanity. Don't hide it. Don't pretend like you don't have a flesh, a war that's going on inside of you. If you walk in the light, and I, it's, isn't that just freeing news? When, I, when I, you first come across it, I walk in the light, I meet them like, oh man, I'm really struggling, I'm really not doing that well. But then if you keep reading, you're like, oh, 
Walking in the light is not perfection, it's confession. It's hope. I can do that. <laughs> I'm really good at telling on myself, right? Like, oh, I did not do that well, you know? And Jen can tell me, like, oh, no, no, you did not do that well either. <laughs> that does not mean I'm not walking in the light. It actually confirms I am. It's the exposure of my humanity that actually connects me to God's faithful pardon of my sin. And that is such good news. So just, just to kind of recap, I'm going to invite Lizzie and Brandon to come on up. Is to ask ourselves, to wrestle with this question, what, what is Jesus coming to earth? How does that change me? And I, and I would argue, based on the scripture, even more, more importantly than the individualistic mindset, is how does that shape us? How does that form us as a community? And there's just, I would just echo these three things that John pointed out. Number one, like that we would become a family. We'd become a koinonia type fellowship that we can exist with God and with each other in a way that is beautiful and vibrant and it, and it reaches a world that is desperate for connection. Secondly, that we'd become a people of joy that does not suppress or dismiss sorrow but lives in the midst of it with a joy, with an undercurrent strong enough to carry us through it. And lastly, that we'd be people who walk in the light. Not in perfectionism, not in religiosity, not in self-righteousness, but with a healthy level of confession and humanity that welcomes the gracious pardon that Jesus brings through his life. We're going to end our service today uh, lighting some candles. There should be a lighter at the end of that chair if you want to right in front of you. I'll grab you one over here. After we get this front row candles light, you guys can just turn behind you and start lighting the persons behind you. And as, as we do, I just want to give a couple practical things. Uh, most practically, don't light the person in front of you on fire because you're closing your eyes in worship, okay? I'm serious. Uh, I've seen it happen before. <laughs> it was with a kid. But be aware. Don't tilt them. Let's honor William, our beloved friend and custodian, by not putting wax on the chairs. But what I would love to encourage you guys to do beyond just have a candle that's, that's lit is that we would have a moment where we can focus on this light as just a small symbol of the great light that Jesus has brought into our life. I want to read you these lyrics. Angels we've heard on high, sweetly singing over the plains. And the mountains in reply echo their joyous strains. Gloria in excelsis Deo, which means glory to God in the highest. Shepherds, why this jubilee? Why your joyous strains prolong? What the gladsome tidings be which inspires your heavenly song? Glory to God in the highest. Come to Bethlehem and see him whose birth the angels sing. Come, adore, on bended knee, Christ the Lord, the newborn King. Father, we thank you so much for the joy, the light, and the life 
you brought 2,000 years ago when you left your heavenly throne, put on human flesh, lived this life perfectly, died our death on a cross, and raised again. We worship you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsandiego.com. Thank you.